we are continuing, we're getting very, very close to the close of it, but we are continuing with our several part series of uh, the plan of salvation and really trying to understand key components that makes it effectual in yours and my life for the honor and glory of God. And last week, we dealt with a very, very serious subject. Um, sometimes it can cause a bit of a stir, division, because of our view of Jesus and understanding the nature he partook. But I believe the word of God was made plain. And um, my hope and prayer is that we can continue to receive the word within our hearts and prove all things, hold fast to that which is good, and to truly allow God to have his sanctifying effect upon each of us. At this time, we're going to go ahead and have a word of prayer as we now go into our study of really looking at, in the plan of salvation, what is God's part? In the plan of salvation, what is our part? And so let's prepare our hearts for that. I'm going to go to my knees, and I'd like to invite you as much as you are able to, to join me by kneeling in prayer at this time. Our Father in heaven, we truly are grateful, Lord, for the many blessings that you have given unto us continually as your children. And Lord, we avail ourselves to you at this time, once again, asking for the outpouring of your Holy Spirit. We pray that he might minister to our hearts and open our eyes Help us behold wondrous things, Lord, out of your law. We pray for the forgiveness of our sins. We pray that this precious gift of salvation that has been made available to us, if we have been taking advantage of it, Lord, help us to do so no longer. Father, I pray, help us to cherish from the heart how you're calling us to a higher cooperation with thee. And may truly not our will, but your will be done. For this is our prayer that we do ask in the worthy and mighty and matchless name of Jesus. Let everyone say, Amen. Amen. Let's take our Bibles and go to the book of 2 Corinthians chapter 11. 2 Corinthians, we're going to chapter 11. I want us to just see some things that the word of God says that I trust will prove to be a blessing to us. We're in 2 Corinthians, we're in the 11th chapter, and we're going to start in verse 1. The Apostle Paul had a lot of burdens for his brothers and sisters in the church of Corinth. A lot of burdens. Um, because the church of Corinth, if, you, if you've ever studied First and 2 Corinthians, um, there was a lot of drama. I mean, it, it was really bad. It, it was so bad that there were things that were being done amongst them as Christians that Paul said, even the heathens don't do this. And it was talking about people having sexual relations with their own mothers. You know, I mean, it was really, really bad. And so obviously the church of Corinth was a great burden on the apostle Paul's heart. And so it is that Paul began to write to them and he would say things like this in verse one. He would say, what to God you could hear with me or you could bear with me a little in my folly and indeed bear with me. Why is Paul saying this? Verse two, for I am jealous over you with godly jealousy, for I have espoused you to one husband that I may present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. Verse three, but I fear lest by any means as the serpent beguiled Eve through his subtlety, so your minds should be corrupted from the simplicity 
that is found in Christ. Paul's fear for the brethren in the church of Corinth is he did not want them to end up becoming deceived as Eve was deceived earlier on. The way that Eve was deceived in Genesis 3 is Satan gave a misrepresentation of the character of God. And when Satan gave that misrepresentation of the character of God, Eve followed suit with that misrepresentation and ended up introducing into our world the terror of sin. So it is that Paul's concern today is with the church that he says, if it were, you know, Paul were alive today, it would be the same concern. I, obviously, as a servant of God, it's my concern. And so it is that the concern is that we remove ourselves from the simplicity of the words of God and what God has said into buying into presentations and concepts and theories that removes us from the simplicity that we can find in Jesus and brings us into strange things. The reason why this is so important is because if ever there was a time that the subject of the plan of salvation needs to be clear in the people of God's mind, it's now. And the reason why is because when you study the Bible carefully, you will find that it was not people outside the church. It was people in the church who didn't understand the plan of salvation. They were in the church. They were not just in the church, but like Nicodemus, they were leaders. It says here, Nicodemus, the church leader, Nicodemus answered and said unto him, how can these things be? Jesus answered and said unto him, Art thou a master of Israel and knowest not these things? Is it possible to be a leader in God's church and not understand how we're saved? The answer is yes. But it was not just leaders in the church that also could go through this. It was also individuals like the rich young ruler who was wealthy and high-ranking. Sometimes when we make a lot of money, and especially if we donate a lot of money, we begin to think that sometimes we are void from correction, void from rebuke, void from a lot of things because of our giving and because of our status and our wealth, but not so. The Bible shows that even those who were rich and wealthy and high ranking could still, though in the church, not understand the plan of salvation. We know it to be so because the Bible says, and a certain ruler who was rich asked him saying, good master, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? His wealth got him many things, but it didn't get him the understanding of how to be saved. Not only that, not only church leaders, not only those who were wealthy and high ranking, but even those who hung closest to Jesus, the disciples themselves. The Bible says, Thomas saith unto him, Lord, we know not whither thou goest. And how can we know the way? And so we are not to allow ourselves to say, because I've been in the church for years, because I'm a leader, because I've given so much and I have status in the church, or even if I've spent a lot of time with Christ, it is still possible that there are things about the plan of salvation that we don't understand. And I'm just sharing this with you, not for the purpose of condemnation. Remember, we don't have a ministry here at Open Door. We don't have a ministry of condemnation at Open Door. We have a ministry of education here at Open Door. Amen. So our goal is not to make people feel bad. Our goal is not to cause individuals to leave here in despair. God forbid. But it is to bring us to a place of reality that just because we've done something for years does not mean we're right. 
Just because we've preached a certain way for years does not mean we're right. I remember when my wife told me she was pregnant with our firstborn, Jared. When Jared was getting ready to come into this world, I was working in a very passive industry as a counselor. I was making in New York City at that time $17,500 a year. That was nowhere near enough in 1998 to bring up a family. And so I remember when my beloved bride told me that she was pregnant, I kept reading all these books, Rich Dad, Poor Dad, and, you know, The Cash Flow Quadrant by Robert Kiyosaki and all these other books. And I remember reading these books. And as I read all these books about these guys who were like millionaires and very wealthy and all these things, the one thing that they all had in common is they had a sales background. And I was like, man, I've never done sales before. And so when my wife told me she was pregnant and I was like, uh oh, okay, we're, gonna, we're about to be a family. There's no way we can make it on this income. So I decided I'm going to have to go ahead and try to figure some things out. And I figured, you know what? Let me give sales a try. If I want the fruit that these guys had, then I got to do the work that they did. So I got into sales. And I remember when I went to work at an organization called Lanier Worldwide, selling copiers, printers, and fax machines. And I remember my first time in sales, never did sales in my life, but I'm doing this because this was the pattern that all these successful business owners did, and therefore I need to follow this pattern. So I'm in there, and I remember Chad, my sales manager. Chad dropped something on us in our sales meeting that I'll never forget. I mean, you're talking about a long time ago. This is like 22, 23 years ago. And I remember Chad sat us down, and Chad said this. He said, how many of you guys have ever heard of the term, practice makes perfect? And we all said, of course. How many of y'all heard of that before? You ever heard that before? Practice makes perfect? He said, did you know that's not true? And we were like, huh? You know, I mean, he's obviously messing with our head. So he's, did you know that's not true? And we were like, really? And he was just like, he said, that's not true. He said, practice does not make perfect. He said, perfect practice makes perfect. And we all had to sit down. He said, you can do something wrong and practice it for a long time and become really, really good at doing something wrong. And that for me was like, I mean, that was mind blowing. I never thought of that. Just because you do something for a long period of time and you have great repetition at it does not mean that you really know what you're doing. And obviously, I took that from the temporal world and I considered that in the spiritual world. It is possible that we could study the Bible for years and years. It is possible that we can sit under certain sermons for years and years and years. And it's possible that we can even teach for years and years and years the same theories and concepts. And all along, we got really good at misunderstanding the Bible or possibly misunderstanding the plan of salvation. It is for these reasons that the Bible records this history, this, this beautiful piece of sacred history, to allow that just because you're a master in Israel, we should not assume that you have all understanding. Just because you're wealthy and have given and done all sorts of wonderful things in and for the church, that in and of itself does not mean that we have understanding. And the deepest one of all is just because you spend a lot of time with Jesus. It's still possible to have a misunderstanding.
I mean, this is very eye opening. And so what God wants us to understand is that the plan of salvation is worthy of being reviewed again. It's worthy of looking at it again, trying to understand, Lord, really and truly, what do these things mean? You remember that the Bible tells us about Jesus. The Bible is very clear. Uh, it's ever so clear. I marvel at and, and it. And it's funny. The disciples had the greatest teacher the world could ever have. Would you agree with that? Especially when it came to spiritual things, right? It, it, they had the best evangelist. They had Jesus himself. But if you study the Bible carefully, the Bible shows that, that the disciples did not understand. I mean, Jesus would repeat himself. He'll be in different locations. He'll be in Caesarea Philippi. He'll be in Galilee. He'll be in different places giving the same message. And the Bible will say they understood none of these things. And I would wonder, like, why is it that the disciples had the best teacher and they couldn't understand? And a lot of people may not be aware of this, but do you know the two things that caused the disciples to misunderstand even Jesus's words? It's two things. Religious pride and hatred of the Romans. It caused them to misconstrue even the clear teachings of the best teacher the world has ever known. That's why even after Jesus was resurrected, you would have figured the disciples, OK, surely you guys got it now. I mean, Jesus is resurrected, right? You got it now, right? But here it is that in Acts chapter one, what did they say to Jesus? Hey, you going to set up your kingdom now? They still missed it. Even with three and a half years of eating, sleeping and drinking with the best teacher the world has ever known. And so it is that sometimes the reason why the gospel can be so confusing to us as God's people, one of the reasons why is because we only see it through a certain lens. Rather than studying the scripture to see what is the text saying. You know, that's the best way to study the Bible. Approach the Bible like a student. Approach the Bible like a learner. Stop being afraid. So many of us approach scripture like, uh-oh, that sounds like liberalism. Let me leave that alone. I must stay conservative. Some of us will say, uh-oh, that sounds too conservative. I need to stay over here where I can maintain my liberal way of worship. We allow these predispositions that we have in our head to cause us to even read clear, plain texts of scripture in a misconstrued manner. And as a result of that, we cannot understand the simplicity of the gospel. We get removed from the simplicity of what the. Family, I've been a Seventh Day Adventist for 30 years. And there's a lot that I believe. And one thing for sure that I'm not I'm unashamed to say, it, I am definitely I don't know all things, but I am so not a dummy. And so it's like if you if you give me something from the word of God, I'm, I'm going to hear you out. I'll be like a Berean. I'll hear you out. But I'm going to I'm going to think through and I'm going to study to show myself approved. And I'd like to recommend you do the same thing. But did you know that the Bible says about the Bereans that they they listened with readiness of mind? They came to the text like, OK, let's hear what you got to say. And if you made a, a, a point, they would say, OK, let, let's see if the text is really saying that. I promise you, beloved. Approach the scripture with the attitude of a student. 
approach the scripture with the attitude of a learner. Just look and see, is this really what the text is saying? And if the text is saying what it's saying, then accept it as the word of God. The Bible says, and she shall bring forth a son. And thou shalt call his name Jesus, because he's going to do something very special. What's he going to do? He's going to save his people from their sins. This is like the big argument in Christianity. Does Christ actually deliver people from their sins or does he still save them in spite of their sins? This is the, this is this is a big argument. Sadly, not just in Christianity at large, but sadly, even amongst God's own remnant. There are people who actually believe I could not get victory over sin. So his grace is just going to kind of cover it up somehow and save me in spite of it. I'm sorry, family. That's a very cheap gospel. That does not hold much value and it does not hold much weight. And I get it. Our bondage is deep. I get that. Some of us are in some darkness and we played with darkness so long and we've been in bondage for so long that we stopped believing God's ability to deliver. I understand that. I relate to that. I relate to that. Sometimes you try to overcome some habits, some problems, whether it be a bad attitude or bad practice. And we try to overcome and we did some stuff. Some of us went on trips, bought books, got all sorts of music and aromatherapy. I mean, we went all out. I got to find something that could finally get me to stop doing these bad things. And after all the investments and all the efforts and everything else, we find, man, I, I, I still can't overcome. I still feel trapped. And what does it do? It makes us stop believing. It makes us stop believing that, well, maybe the gospel was not about what God can deliver me from, but what God can save me in. So rather than him saving me from sin, he saves me in sin. I don't necessarily stop. I just do it a little less. And somehow God just kind of works through that. And this is why we go back and forth and back and forth. And I would imagine even after this sermon and many others by messengers that, that are faithful, that it, it may not settle it. You have to be settled in your own mind. But what I believe is that the word of God is clear. Jesus does not save his people in sin. He saves us from sin. Now, I wanted to know what the word from means, right? And this is what it means. The word from, right there directly from the Greek, it usually denotes separation, departure, cessation. It's complete. It's a reversal. This is the power of God. Family, is there anything in your life that you can remember that you used to do? It was clearly sin. It was totally against the word of God. One day you came in contact with the lovely Jesus. And when you came in contact with him, something happened. Not you, you didn't just change your behavior. You changed from your heart. There were things that you used to love that you actually hate. And there's things you used to hate that you actually love. Is there anybody that's in this room that's a witness to this? Now, what I'm saying is if God did that for one sin in your life, 
please give me a rational reason why God cannot do that for every sin in your life. Give me something. Give us ministers something. You know, I'm a black man, right? In case you didn't notice that. Um, and if there's one thing that bothers me is when I go to stores and people approach me that are not black and they talk to me like this. Yo, what up, bro? I'm like, why'd you do that? You just, you just categorized me. You know what I'm saying? You just prejudged me, right? So, but because I'm a man that doesn't get offended too easily, I could have fun with it. So, you know, when the guy came, this guy came up to me at the time, yo, what up, bro? I remember he did that. I was in New York. What up, bro? And I was like, excuse me, what, what bro? <laughs> I just started messing with him. I was like, bro, what, bro? What do you mean by bro? And he was like, I mean, you know, bro. I was like, bro, I, I don't know bro. Do you mean brother? I just did it to just mess with his head. And then all of a sudden he was like, well, well I, how can I help you, sir? Oh, th thank you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now we can talk. Nobody likes being prejudged. Is that right? You don't like being prejudged. You don't like doing that. You know, when ministers begin to teach the, the power of the gospel to give victory over sin, do you know there's a prejudice that says, oh, you're one of those last generation people? I'm like, did I say anything about last generation? I didn't say anything about last generation. I, I just said what the Bible said. Why are, you, why are you lumping me into a category of people? In other words, bigotry exists even in the spiritual realm. We immediately hear somebody say something, say, oh, you must be one of those conservatives. Oh, you must be one of those liberals. Oh, you must be one of those present truthers or whatever. It's like, how about you accept me just for who I am and just hear me for what I'm saying? Just hear me for what I'm saying and stop trying to categorize me. And I've been, I've been a victim of even this foolishness as a result of preaching and teaching what the word of God says. And so I know why I'm harping on the point. Try to just hear what the word of God is saying and stop trying to hear what you want to hear or even worse, what Satan is whispering in your ear. The word of God declares that the deliverance that Christ gives from sin, it brings us to a place of cessation. It causes a separation between us and sin. It gets us to a place that it's a complete reversal. And the question is, do you believe this? For the Bible says, all things are possible to him that believes. You see, the reality is that sin does separate us. That's what sin does. It separates us, it separates us from God and so on. The Bible says it very clearly. But your iniquities have separated between you and your God and your sins have hid his face from you that he will not hear. Sin separates us from God. So the ideology of Jesus is he wants to cause a cessation of sin. He wants to separate us from sin so that we can have the blessed reunion. There's a beautiful hymn that we have called face to face. Shall I behold him? Well, that means something must have ceased. Would you agree? Can we see God face to face right now? No, and there's one reason why the text is telling us. Your have separated between you and your God and our what? Sins have hid his what? 
So if we're going to have face-to-face reunion, that means there must have been a cessation of the thing that caused God to turn his face. And with Christ, this is possible. Now, as we studied last week, even though God can deliver us completely from sin, is that for you and I to identify in our lives? What did we learn last week? No. You and I do not get to the place that we one day say, praise the Lord, I have total and complete victory over sin. We are not going to be a repeat of the Holy Flesh movement. Those of you who are part of the Advent band should know what I'm talking about. Going to be a repetition of the holy flesh movement and start talking about we are so victorious over sin that we can't even sin anymore. That is not what God is calling us to. Amen. Amen. All we simply do is Philippians 3 13 and 14. We forget the things that are behind, we reach for the things that are before us, and we press toward the mark. That's your job, that's my job. We are not to determine or to finally say, I have arrived and I'm now perfect, I'm now sinless, or any of that. That is not what we do. Amen? Amen. But is it possible that God can deliver us? Now go to Jeremiah 30, let me show you something. This is future. This is sweet. This is future, Jeremiah 30. In Jeremiah the 30th chapter, this is, this is how this story of victory over sin is going to play out in the future. Jeremiah 30. We're looking at Jeremiah 30, verses 5 to 7. This is a most beautiful prophecy. It's a beautiful prophecy, prophecy for a time that the student of prophecy should be preparing for. In Jeremiah chapter 30, verses 5 to 7, if you're there, please say amen. All right. In Jeremiah 30, verses 5 to 7, here's what the Bible says. It says, For thus saith the Lord, we have heard a voice of trembling, of fear, and not of peace. And see whether a man doth travail with child. Where do I see every man with his hands on his loins as a woman in travail, and all faces are turned into paleness? Verse 7, alas, for that day is great, so that none is like it. It is even the what? It's the time of Jacob's trouble, but he shall be saved out of it. God's people are preparing for a time of Jacob's trouble. That's what's still future. Time of Jacob's trouble is very sweet to me because it means that God is going to have a people on earth before the second coming of Christ that are going to go through the time of trouble that Jacob went through. Now watch this. What we know is that it was fellow believers, professed fellow believers, that will be persecuting the faithful believers. Just the same way Esau was a professed believer who was persecuting Jacob, who was the faithful believer. Are you following? When Jacob wrestled with that angel, thinking that it was his brother Esau, when Jacob wrestled with that angel, do you remember that the angel asked Jacob a question in that wrestling? That, the angel asked him a question, didn't he? The angel said, what is your name? Now, you understand that in the Bible, what do names represent in the Bible? Character. Character. That's, why, that's why when you saw Matthew 121, they shall call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. Names represent character. So the angel says, what's your name? Do you remember what Jacob said? Oh, you got to go back to your Old Testament, family. I'll tell you what Jacob said. Jacob said, 
My name is Jacob. Now, does anybody in the room know what the name Jacob means? Deceiver. So check it out. Check it out. This is so deep. How is sweet. How did Jacob see himself before the angel? He saw himself as a deceiver. Oh, man, but that's not the end of the dialogue, is it? The dialogue continues. The angel now says something to Jacob that was top news. The angel says to Jacob, that's not your name. Is that right? The angel made it clear. That's not your name. Then says, let me tell you what your name is. And what do names indicate? Character. The angel says, your name is Israel. What does Israel mean? One who is an overcomer. And the angel said, your name is Israel because you, you have prevailed. You have overcome. So check this out. Jacob had victory over his sins and didn't know it. It was the angel that had to tell him. And God says in the future, I'm not going to have one person. I'm going to have a people that's going to go through a time of Jacob's trouble. And guess what? It's going to be the same story. A bunch of people that how do they see themselves? Sinners. But the divine one will say, no, you are overcomers and you will be sealed with the seal of the living God. That's what the Bible teaches. And that is consistent with scripture. God is going to have a group of overcomers in the very last moments of earth's history. What are we doing? We're pressing toward that mark. Everything that gets in our way, you press through it. If more stuff gets in your way, you press through that. You keep pressing. You never give up. Amen. You follow that? If you fall down even seven times, what do you do? You get back up and you keep pressing. Amen? All right. Now. The Blessed Herald of the first, second, and third angel's message lets us know that the sealing work is everything to us. It's what we're preparing for because there's only one. The same way that the world started with two groups of worshipers is the same way the world ends with two groups of worshipers. You understand that? In the beginning of time, Cain and Abel, both worshipers, Cain does some of what God says and does some of his own will. Abel does exactly what God says. Abel, blessed and favored. Cain, disapproved of and cursed. In the last days of earth's history, there's going to be Babylon and the remnant. Babylon is going to do some of what God says, but mingle it with their traditions and their own commandments. The remnant do exactly what God says. So as the world began, that's how the world's going to end. Two class of worshipers in the beginning, two class of worshipers in the end. In Revelation 7, the Bible gives a description of this class of worshiper, which I would trust you and I want to be a part of. Let's go to Revelation 7. In Revelation 7, let's look at verses 1 to 3. And I want you to see what the Bible says. Revelation 7. Verses 1 to 3. In Revelation, the seventh chapter, we're considering verses 1 to 3. 
When you get there, let me know by saying amen. All right. Revelation 7, we're looking now at verses 1 to 3. The Bible says, And after these things I saw four angels standing on the four corners of the earth, holding the four winds of the earth, that the wind should not blow on the earth, nor on the sea, nor on any tree. And I saw another angel ascending from the east, having the seal of the living God. And he cried with a loud voice to the four angels to whom it was given to hurt the earth and the sea, saying, here we go, hurt not the earth, neither the sea nor the trees, till we have done what? Sealed the servants of our God, where? In their foreheads. This is the great work of God. This is what you and I are preparing for. The world is gearing up fast and furious. And don't worry. Oh, don't worry. There's going to be a point in time at Open Door that we're going to have a series of studies just on Bible prophecy. So if you think I don't understand what just happened with Roe versus Wade, oh, please be not mistaken. That thing made history, not just history, American prophetic history. This world is going in the direction of the reunion of church and state. And the agitations have been going on for some time. But what just took place is huge. Some people just rejoicing because babies don't get murdered anymore. And I get it. I understand that. But brothers and sisters, that vote was way deeper than that. And who it came from? Oh, no, that has deep prophetic significance. God wants us to understand the world is preparing for the mark of the beast. And that means God's people should be preparing for the seal of God. Amen. Now, here's one fact. It's an amazing fact. <laughs> here's one fact that we know for sure about those who get the seal of the living God. It's the reward of rewards. Here's the fact. Not one of us will ever receive the seal of God while our characters have how many? One spot or stain upon them. It is left with us to remedy the defects in our characters, to cleanse the soul temple of how much defilement? Every defilement. Then, so notice, then the latter rain will fall upon us as the early rain fell upon the disciples on the day of Pentecost. So this is the experience that God is calling us to start preparing for now in our cooperation with him. Amen. Amen. Now, going further, it says, I saw that word refreshing is synonymous to that latter rain falling. I saw that none could share the refreshing unless they obtained the victory over how much? Every besetment over pride, selfishness, love of the world, and over how much? Every wrong word and action. Tall order. When my, when my children were young, we read a little book called Messages to Young People. And one of the chapters in that precious little book was called our high calling. This is, this is the great tragedy of what we've done in the church today. We don't present a high calling. And again, I'm not saying this wholesale. I know there are churches, I know there are ministers that are doing it. So I, I dare not, I don't like making wholesale statements. I, what I'm saying is a great number, too big, too big, is not setting the standard high. 
And that's why sin runs rampant throughout the church, throughout our lives, throughout our homes, all sorts of stuff, because we don't set it high. We got so stuck in reality that we don't set it high. That's not the will of God, family. Set the thing high. Keep the aim high. And if you fall down, then get back up. But don't dumb down the gospel to accommodate our cherished weaknesses. Don't do that to Jesus. The blood of Christ was spilled so that the aim can be high. Keep it high, beloved. If we're struggling, listen, where sin abounds, God says, I got more than enough grace if you keep falling. We don't have to dumb down the message so we can stay in our debilitated state. Keep that thing high. And if you fall down, thank the Lord, the Bible says, my little children, these things write I unto you that you sin not. But if any man sin, he has an advocate with the father. Jesus Christ, the righteous. We don't have to dumb down the message. Where sin abounds, grace is much more abounds. We don't have to do that. But when you dumb down the message, when you make it sound like we can do almost anything and God's just going to anoint it anyhow, brothers and sisters, we are doing more of a tragedy to the gospel than we realize. Family, do you know the impact of when God gets us to this place? Do you know the impact of this? The Bible lets us know. We can be reunited with God and see him face to face. That's first of all. The more that we cooperate with our Lord and he he delivers us, we can finally be reunited with God and see him face to face. That's beautiful. Not only that, we can cease bringing pain to God's heart. The Bible literally says, you know, I love how Patriarchs and Prophets says it. It says so often we consider how much sin has caused us suffering. But then she says, but how rare it is that we consider how much sin has caused God pain and suffering. It breaks his heart. I can't stand being away from my wife. God, boy, my, my, my children, my lovely bride, everybody will tell you that. I don't like being separated from my wife. And when I got to go on a trip, I have to, I have to mentally psych myself up. If I know I'm going away for a little while, I got to psych myself up like, all right, I'm not going to see you, you know, whatever and so on. And I got to kind of get myself up because she's my best. She's my best friend. She's my absolute best. Y'all know how it is. Do you have a best friend? If you have a best friend, you know what I'm talking about. At least to a degree. And here it is that when I don't have the privilege of being able to see my wife, hang out with my wife and everything, brothers and sisters, It's just like, you know, you kind of, like I said, you got to psych your mind up, you got to focus, and then go about doing your business. But boy, do I love giving the countdown. If I'm gone for a week, I say, all right, day one's down, six more days. And then next thing you know, I'm about God's business. Wake up in the morning, all right, Lord, help me to serve your people with my whole heart. Serve the people, and then it gets nighttime, getting ready to go to bed. Praise the Lord, six days, now it's five more left. And I give that countdown. My most glorious day is when it's the day before departure. And here it is that I'm going around talking to everybody. Praise the Lord. They're like, Brother Lemon, why are you so happy? I said, I'm happy because I love you. <laughs> and <laughs> in less than 24 hours, I'm going to be reunited with my wife. Now, when I see my woman and we come together, brothers and sisters, it's glorious. What I'm telling you is this. You are God's wife. 
And you think he's satisfied with just prayer? You think he's just satisfied with praise? You think he's satisfied with, with using frail, messed up people to represent his words? Do you understand how much God wants to remove prayer and remove these things, remove the preachers and talk to you face to face? He longs to be reunited with his bride. He longs to be reunited with us. He can't wait. And every time we choose to hold on and make excuses, we're delaying the reunion. The Bible says hastening. Give me another word for hastening. Hurrying up, making it quick. Hastening the coming of the Lord. Imagine if we got so on fire for God that we put aside some of our extracurricular activities and got more about God's business and sharing the gospel. Could it possibly hasten the coming of the Lord? What if there was a revival in yours and my heart, like in the days of the church of Philadelphia? God has no rebuke for them. He simply says, keep doing what you're doing. Oh, family, that's where we want to be. God says this is the formula. Now watch. It stops the pain. Finally, God's character will finally be vindicated. I mean, look, this is the beauty of it. The more we cooperate with Jesus, the more that we allow him to have his sanctifying effect upon our hearts, it literally can bring about these things, which I think is beautiful. But it's a call to cooperation. And the question is, how do we cooperate? This will be a part one, and then we'll do another one when I come back from my mission. As of next week, I'll be gone for a mission, but then when I get back, we'll do the part two. I want you to watch this. How many of you have read this book? Let me see your hand. Good, sister. Amen. All right. Beautiful. Way too little of us, though. <laughs> I would like to recommend that you all get your hands on this book. Oh, praise the Lord. Oh, look at that. We got somebody in the back. She's like, look, I got my copy. Amen, sister. Amen. Now, if you've never read this book, go to this website and you can get it. Okay? I highly recommend it. This book beautifully walks us through the plan of salvation. This book has brought a revival to my heart time and again. And my encouragement to each of you is that you get a copy of this. My encouragement is that you go through it in your secret time with God. And as you go through it, study it faithfully, point by point. Look up every verse, look up every quote, look at everything and all. But I have found that this book is beautiful in its layout of this blessed plan of salvation. And these last few moments that we have together, we're just going to go through some of the steps. You see, again, one of our problems is we don't necessarily believe God can bring true victory in our lives because I believe we understand God's part versus our part. And the more that we get these parts confused is the less that the plan works. And so what I'm going to do is I took an excerpt from this. I took, I took an excerpt from this book, but I magnified it. I, I added some scriptures and things that wasn't in the book necessarily. And funny enough, the author of this book got in touch with me some years ago. And she and I were going to do a collaborative work together on creating a study guide. And I lost contact with her, possibly 
because she might have passed. I've been trying to find her, but I have not had much success in recent years. When we look at the plan of salvation, I want to talk about God's part and I want to talk about our part. And I want us to see right from the word of God. And I got a whole team of readers that have been eagerly waiting for me so they can help me out with this message. When we talk about God's part and our part, I want you to see clearly what is it that God does and what is it that we are to do. And let's not get it confused. The very first step in the plan of salvation. God's part is he draws us. Can we have John 6 and verse 44 with the microphone? Go ahead and read. First part of God in the plan of salvation is he draws us. Sister Ellie, go ahead. No man can come to me except the Father which has sent me drawn him, and I will raise him up at the, la at the last day. So the Bible is very clear. No man can come unto God except the Father does what? Draws them. So the way the plan of salvation works is none of us are so smart, wise, or holy that one day we just figured out all on our own that we needed God. When you and I figured out that we needed God, we are actually responding to what he was already doing. Amen. Are you following that? No man comes except he draws us. But here's the question. How exactly does he draw us? John 12 and verse 32. Next reader. And I, if I be lifted up from the earth, will draw all men unto me. Aha. So according to this verse, does the father draw us? How does he draw us, according to John 12? Through Christ crucified. You got that? This is how people are drawn. So this is why, if we're going to help bring people to salvation, what must we highlight? Christ crucified, better known as the love of God. Are you following that? It's the love of God that's going to draw humanity unto himself. You get it? And God's love is revealed in sacrifice. Okay. Now, Zechariah 12, who aids? Oh, man, this is sweet. Who aids in the process of us discerning Christ crucified that is drawing us unto the Father? Now, Zechariah 12 and verse 10. And I will pour upon the house of David and upon the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and of supplications. And they shall look upon me whom they have pierced, and they shall mourn for him as one mourneth for his only son, and shall be in bitterness for him as one that is in bitterness for his firstborn. I don't know if y'all caught this, but th this, this is beautiful. You're literally watching the whole Godhead involved in saving us. John 6 the Father draws us. John 12, through Christ crucified. Zechariah 12, through the Holy Spirit that is pulling us and drawing us. Did you catch it? And Zechariah 12 said, and I will pour upon the house of David the spirit of grace and of supplication. And then it says, from that, they shall look upon me, whom they have pierced, and they will be sorrowful. It's the spirit of God that is bringing our attention to Christ crucified. And through Christ crucified, we begin to discern how great is our father's love for us. Amen. Whole Godhead working to save you and to save me. It's beautiful. And it all centers around the love of God. So now here's the question. What's our part? As God does this incredible work through preachers, through literature, I heard some of you have been giving out literature. Oh, bless your heart and all your vital organs. 
God bless you. Thank you for taking the literature and getting it out to the people. Oh, that's an that's a, that's a end time work. God bless you. God works through many ways. But what is he doing? He's drawing us. Now, what's our part? Now, do not resist his drawing. That's your part. God is always, you're going to discern, God is always drawing. He's always pulling. What's your part? Don't resist it. Don't fight it. We get James 4, 7 confused. What does James 4 and verse 7 say? Submit yourself, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Isn't it amazing how we sometimes can submit ourselves, therefore, to and resist God? Do you see how the devil tries to trick us with that? Even in your moments of discouragement, beloved, don't allow yourself to get so down that you begin to misconstrue the character of God. Satan loves to do that. The Bible says resist the devil, but it says submit to God. Don't resist. Submit. Yield. Cooperate and say, all right, Lord, I hear you talking. How about this? Ephesians 4 and verse 30. What does it say next? And grieve not the Holy Spirit of God. Whereby ye are sealed unto the day of redemption. Amen. So don't grieve the Spirit of God by constantly resisting. Have an attitude of yielding. First step, God draws us. Our part, don't resist the drawing. What's God's part next? He will convict us of sin. John 16, 8. Who has that? And when he is come, he will convict the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. You know, I like the translation where it doesn't say convict, but it says convince. I really like that translation. Convince. Because sometimes this is the hard part. I mean, when we behold the love of God as revealed through Christ crucified, sooner or later we have to ask ourselves, why did all this happen? And God then brings it to our attention. It was your sins and it was my sins that did this. He convinces us of sin. Now, when he convinces us of sin, what's our part? Jeremiah 3, 12 through 14. Acknowledge your guilt and need of him. Go ahead. Go and proclaim these words toward the north and say, Return backsliding Israel, says the Lord. I will not cause my anger to fall on you, for I am merciful, says the Lord. I will not remain angry forever. Only acknowledge your iniquity that you have transgressed against the Lord your God. And have scattered your charms to alien deities under every green tree. And you have not obeyed my voice, says the Lord. Return, O backsliding children, says the Lord, for I am married to you. I will take you, one from a city and two from a family, and I will bring you to Zion. Do you see how God just said, just acknowledge your iniquity? It's like he's letting, he's letting them know in advance, I still consider myself married to you, even though you played the harlot and I have a right to divorce you. God says, just acknowledge your iniquity. Take ownership. Now, this is hard for some of us. Right here is where the plan of salvation often fails because one of the scariest things to do is to accept correction. One of the hardest things to do is to acknowledge I'm wrong. I messed up. With no buts, always remember, but is goat language. That's what goats do. Goats got the horns, they butt each other, right? So that's what I'm saying. A lot of us, we talk like goats. You know, I, I did wrong. Okay, yeah, I messed up. But I'm just saying, if you didn't, that's goat. Husbands and wives, do that next time. Next time y'all get into an argument and you start getting ready to make peace, 
And then the husband or the wife says, yeah, you know, but just say goat, that's goat. Is it like, go right, honey, that's goat. We need lamb language. Lamb is bad, right? <laughs> lamb. Lamb language, no goat. Amen? Amen? Amen. So watch this. This is beautiful. God's part is he draws us. Our part, don't resist the drawing. God's part, he now senses us of sin. He's going to reveal to us our wrongdoings. It hurts. It hurts. I had to send that to someone earlier this week. A quote from Ministry of Healing where it talks about it's always humiliating to be corrected. It's humiliating. We get it. It, it, it. There's a humiliating component. Nobody likes being corrected. And that's why we always look for their faults, too. OK, you hit me with that. Uh, but, but, you know, you messed up, too. Right. That's always self-justification movement. But th- literally accept the correction. What's God's part? He will give you repentance. Go ahead. Read it. Acts 5, 30 and 31. The God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom ye slew and hanged on a tree. Him hath God exalted with his right hand to be a prince and a savior, for to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. Did you notice that it says to give repentance to Israel? In other words, we can't conjure up repentance in our hearts, in and of ourselves. We don't have any ability to do that. What we do is we accept what he's given us. The Bible says God gives you repentance. He gives you the ability to turn from the evil and walk towards the good. He gives that to us. Are you following? So then what's our part? Confess and forsake your sins and give him permission to take all your heart. Let's go ahead and read it. First John 1 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive, forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Amen. So how much does he forgive us? All. Next. Acts 26 and verse 20. But shewed first unto them of Damascus and at Jerusalem and throughout all the coasts of Judea and then to the Gentiles, that they should repent and turn to God and do works meet for repentance. Amen. Repent, turn to God. So don't just turn away from the sin to another sin. Turn away from the sin and turn to God. Amen. Do the works that are appropriate for repentance. Then Proverbs 23, 26. Now what does God want from you? My son, give me thine heart and let thine eyes observe my ways. So what's the number one thing God wants? He wants our heart or our minds. Now here's the question. How much does he want? Jeremiah 29 and verse 13. And ye shall seek me and find me, and when ye shall search for me with all your heart. Amen. So how much does God want? This is the biggest battle. Family, I'm helping you to understand the reason why God's plan of deliverance often does not work in the lives of his people is a lot of people have not gotten here yet. Some of us, we trust God with certain areas of our lives, but not everything. And to trust God with your whole life means that you submit to every word that proceeds out of his mouth. That means that if you are four years into a relationship, prepared to marry next week, you go to the word of God and find out he or she is all wrong. You submit to the word of God and you cancel the marriage. It does not matter. How far along we've gone. You're about to graduate from school and everything else, and all of a sudden God says, that's not the career that I chose for you. I have a totally different path for your life. 
you submit. What I'm saying, beloved, is letting God have control over everything is hard. But this is where the reward is. And sometimes the curses remain in our lives because we have not yet gotten to that place to say, Lord, I trust you with everything. And somebody may say, I'm down to three minutes to hit my hour. <laughs> Some people may say, I've tried giving God my heart. And it still didn't work. I don't necessarily read that God wants us to give him our heart. Because I'm going to tell you right now, I don't think you can. And I know I can't. But there is something you can give God. And you know what it is? Permission to take your heart. You can do that. Somebody says, where'd you get that from? Right here. No outward observances can take the place of simple faith and entire renunciation of self. But no man can empty himself of self. We can only do what? Consent for Christ to accomplish the work. Then the language of the soul will be, Lord, take my heart, for I cannot give it. It is thy property. Keep it pure, for I cannot keep it for thee. Save me in spite of myself, my weak, unchristlike self. Mold me, fashion me, raise me to, unto a pure and holy atmosphere where the rich current of thy love can flow through my soul. I have finally learned. Lord, I can't, I'm so wretched, I can't even give you my heart. All I can do is give you permission to perform the miracle. Behold the Lamb of God that... What is he taking away? That stony heart. What is he giving his place? A new heart. A heart of flesh. We got to get to a place to say, Lord, I, I, I admit, I can't stop. I keep trying to stop, Lord. I've tried to give you my heart, and it's like a yo-yo. I throw my heart to you, and then I pull it back, and then I throw my heart, and then I keep pulling it back. And Jesus is saying, listen, you can keep trying to give me your heart, but we're just going to continue the game of yo-yo. But Jesus says, give me permission to take your heart. I'm knocking at your heart's door. All I need you to do is let me come in. I guarantee you, Christ says, I will clean you up. But Jesus is a gentleman. And gentlemen knock at a woman's door that he wants to be with. He doesn't bust the door open and he doesn't take charge. He knocks and he says, may I sit here? And when the woman says, yes, you can come in and you can sit wherever you want. That's when he says, all right, guess where I'm going to sit? I'm going to sit at the seat of your heart. And I'm going to do a transplant. And he can take away stuff. Beloved, I'm telling you, God can do this. Christ is trying to plead with us. Revisit this beautiful plan of salvation. And let's start today by saying, Lord, take my heart because I can't give it. And now it's your property. Therefore, keep it. And you will see that when we come back, I'm going to walk you through the rest of the steps. And we are going to enter into an experience of the plan of salvation that I believe will be different than anything that we have ever accepted in times past, except it be that you got it right the first time. But beloved, thus far, this is God's plan of salvation, and it does work. And my question is, how many of you would say, I want it to work for me even today? If so, please stand to your feet.
Stand to your feet, raise your hand. I want you to know that God is ready to do some miracles. He's been ready. And he's revisiting. He's causing us to revisit this subject, to look at it way more carefully than we have done in times past. Overall, the desire of God is to help you understand his part. And we understand our part and watch the cooperation and the communion perform the greatest miracles for yours in my life. And then the best thing is after we experience it, guess what we can do? Now we can go share it with others. This is my prayer for each and every one of us. And this is my prayer for my own heart. Let us pray together. Our loving Father, we thank you so much for all that you've taught us. We thank you, dear God, that you're opening our eyes and you're truly helping us behold wondrous things out of your word. And Lord, we have taken a look at the plan of salvation, perhaps for many of us, in a way that we've never seen it before. Step by step, understanding your part and understanding our part. Lord, I pray in a special way that all of my dear young sentinels, all those precious youth who assisted this message to go forward so fluently, I pray your blessings upon them. I ask you, dear God, that you will anoint them and help them to see the sons and daughters of God you've created them to be, and that they will not resist the call of your voice, and that they will respond with the spirit of I yield, I yield. But Lord, I pray not only for my precious young brothers and sisters, I pray this for every single one of us under the sound of my voice, those who are watching through the cameras. Lord, please work out your will in our lives. Thank you for showing us. We can't give you our hearts, but we can give you permission to take it. Lord, take our hearts, for we cannot give it. It is your property. And keep it pure because we can't keep it for thee. And Lord, save us in spite of ourselves, our weak, unchristlike selves. And mold us and fashion us and raise us to a holy atmosphere where only, only, only the rich currents of your love can flow through our soul. Please, Lord, do what I pray. Even now, in Jesus' name, let everyone say, Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.